Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Streaming music is a very cool way to access tens of millions of songs with just a few pokes on your phone. The idea of being able to listen to virtually any song from any era of human history with such ease, I mean, it's, it's pretty much magic, right? The downside of streaming is that it doesn't provide any context to what we're hearing. A continuous stream of music tells us nothing about the artist or the song. It's just music, standing alone with nothing to anchor it to anything. Now, it was different in the old days. If you bought an album, damn it, that was an investment. You paid money for it, which created a fiscal relationship with the artist. And that meant that you were more likely to stick with an album and get deeper into the artist and the songs. Otherwise, you had this nagging feeling that you had wasted your money. You weren't getting as much out of the music as you should. Context means so much to the enjoyment of music, which is probably a reason you're listening to me right now. You want more than just the notes that make up a song, right? Okay, yeah, sometimes a song is just a song. You know, it's got a good beat. You can dance to it, maybe sing along. And it really doesn't mean anything more than that. But some songs are very deep. They actually form some part of a historical record. They tell the story of real people, real events, and the things that came after. That's what we're going to do with this show. Everything we're about to hear is based on fact, on history, on actual events. And maybe you'll be shocked by the truth beyond the songs that you've been digging all your life. This isn't anything that you're going to get from a stream. Trust me. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is all about the true stories behind big alt-rock songs. Real people and real events inspired these tracks, and I really, really think that this sort of knowledge enhances our appreciation and enjoyment of music. Knowing the truth, these origin stories, makes songs more meaningful and thus more impactful from an emotional point of view. And isn't that what we all want from music? To affect us as deeply as possible? Let's begin with The Clash. When the band was young, and this would be late 1976 and through 1977, they burned extremely bright. Inspiration was taken from what they saw around them in London during the punk years. And that wasn't a great time for the English. The economy was in shambles, there were strikes and high unemployment and rolling blackouts and the crushing reality of the British class system. The Clash was in the middle of it all and tried to document what it meant to be young and poor and desperate in Britain back then. When they entered CBS Studio 3 to record their self-titled debut album, they were armed with a bunch of songs based on real people and real events. And one of these tracks was called White Riot. Now, on August 30th, 1976, there was a riot in the Notting Hill area of London. Now, back then, this wasn't the high-end posh neighborhood it is today. Its citizens were mostly black, West Indian immigrants and their families. And on that day, the neighborhood was enjoying its annual carnival, a summer event that began in 1964. But underneath it all, there were bad relations with the police, which had a policy of stopping and searching people. It was a, a very clear case of arbitrary harassment. About 1,600 cops moved in that day, which seemed a little extreme since no one was really expecting any trouble. And you got to admit that that's a, a lot of police for a street carnival. The trigger seems to have been the attempted arrest of a pickpocket at around 5 p.m. that day. The fighting broke out when several residents went to help the pickpocket. 
The community fought back hard. 300 police officers were taken to hospital with injuries. 35 police vehicles were overturned and set on fire. There was plenty of property damage. And if you look at the back of that first Clash album cover, you'll see a picture of what happened. 66 people were arrested and 17 black youths faced a total of 79 charges. The trials cost a then record quarter million pounds. Now, Joe Strummer was fascinated by all this. He wondered why white people didn't have the same fortitude when standing up to police. Why didn't they fight for their rights in the same way? When The Clash played the song, some people got the wrong idea, calling it racist. Others took the song as an invitation to make trouble. And by the end of 1979, The Clash stopped playing this track because so many people had misinterpreted Joe's intentions. But that didn't stop it from becoming a Clash classic. Clash and White Riots, inspired by the Notting Hill Riot of August 30th, 1976. Our next song is one of several songs that deal with gun violence, and the date we're talking about here is January 29th, 1979. Brenda Spencer was a 16-year-old girl living with her divorced dad in San Diego. They lived in poverty. Mattresses on the floor, dad's empty liquor bottles everywhere, and although Brenda really didn't like school, she was actually a pretty good photographer. At some point as a kid, she had an accident on her bike and hit her head hard. And after that, she was never quite the same. People would later learn that she had some kind of problem with her temporal lobe, a part of the brain that deals with emotion. And we'll come back to that in a second. Brenda was always skipping school and was sent to a special facility for kids with problems. She reported being suicidal and depressed. She was arrested for shooting out the windows of Cleveland Elementary School with a BB gun, which was across the street from where she lived. When it came to Christmas 1978, she asked her dad for a radio, just a simple radio. But for some reason, maybe because he knew that Brenda liked to hunt birds in the neighborhood, in San Diego, uh, her dad bought her a Ruger semi-automatic rifle with a telescopic sight and 500 rounds of ammunition, which is just the perfect thing for a 16-year-old suicidal, depressed, angry girl, right? On Monday, January 29th, 1979, a little over a month after dad gave her an arsenal, she waited for Principal Burton Wegg to open the gates to the same school, Cleveland Elementary, the one right across the street. She opened fire, shooting 30 rounds. Wegg was killed, so was a custodian who came to help. Eight children were injured. Brenda stayed barricaded in her home for hours. When a reporter for a local newspaper reached her by phone and asked her why she did it, she simply replied, I don't like Mondays. It livens up the day. At the same time all this was happening, Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats was at a college radio station in Atlanta. The news broke over the wire while he was there. And within hours, he was writing a song about the shooting. And this was the result. I don't like Mondays. Tell me why. I don't like Mondays. I want to shoot. Boomtown Rats with I Don't Like Mondays from 1979. It's based on the true story of a school shooting by Brenda Spencer in San Diego on Monday, January 29th, 1979. She's still in prison at the California Institution for Women in Cairo, California. 
The next song is also based on some real-life violence. On January 30th, 1972, a group of unarmed protesters were marching in the northern Irish town of Derry. It was the time of the Troubles, fighting between Irish Protestants and Catholics. There were clashes and plenty of deaths the previous year. Shootings, nail bombs, sniper fire, the Irish Republican Army versus the British Army. In early January 1972, the mayor of Derry banned all marches and parades for the rest of the year in hopes that this would de-escalate the tensions and stop the killings. Well, that didn't stop some protesters. On January 30th, up to 15,000 people took to the streets, and at some point, stones were thrown at British soldiers. And that's when everything started going to hell. When it was all over, 26 people had been shot. 13 died at the scene. One died later. The day became known as the Bogside Massacre to some and Bloody Sunday to others. Okay, fast forward 10 years. U2 was still early in their career and looking for ways to promote themselves. Manager Paul McGinnis managed to get them a spot in the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade. Okay, fair enough. Good gimmick for some Irish boys. But then they discovered that the parade would include some members of the IRA. This did not sit well with U2. Exporting the fighting beyond Ireland was wrong, so it was decided that U2 would not march. But when McGinnis tried to explain their position, he got into a fight with some IRA people. The upshot of all this was that U2 wrote Sunday Bloody Sunday for the war album. It's not actually about what happened in Derry on January 30th, 1972. It's really more about the dilemma and the conflict U2 had during the 1982 St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. The sentiment is, how long is hate like this going to continue? You too, and a song inspired by some difficulties during the 1982 St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. Okay, let's, let's take a break from violence with this next true story. Okay, there's violence, but nobody got killed. It is October 1986. CBS News anchor Dan Rather is walking down Park Avenue in New York City after having dinner at a friend's house. Suddenly, two well-dressed white men get in his way. The tall one with the mustache looks at Rather and says, Kenneth, what's the frequency? Rather replied, um, sorry, you've got the wrong guy. And that's when the guy punches Dan in the face. Rather gets up and starts to run. The two guys follow him, screaming and punching and kicking at him, all while yelling, Kenneth, what's the frequency? Dan dashes into the lobby of a nearby building where the doorman calls for help, and that's when the two well-dressed men disappear. They are never caught, nor is their true motive ever discovered. And for a while, people accused Dan of making all this up. But the doorman was his witness. He says, yeah, this is what happened. For a while... A theory was floated that Dan had been mistaken for a man named Kenneth Schaefer, an electronics expert who had designed a system for intercepting coded Soviet satellite transmissions. Later in the decade, we heard that the attacker had been identified as a guy named William Tanger, a mentally ill man who believed that the media, specifically Dan Rather and CBS News, had been beaming signals into his head. Tanger was eventually convicted for murdering an NBC technician on August 31st, 1994, and at his trial, a psychologist testified that it was definitely Tager who assaulted Dan Rather. Tager was sent to jail and paroled in 2010. Okay, so a done deal, right? Well, not really. 
A writer for Harper's Magazine named Paul Limbert Allman found some interesting coincidences while reading the stories of a Texas writer named Donald Bartholome. In these fictional stories, Bartholome often had a character named Kenneth. The phrase, what is the frequency, also turned up a number of times, as did a character, a newsman no less, named, wait for it, Mr. Lather. Mr. Lather is not looked upon kindly in these stories. He is portrayed as evil and unscrupulous. Like Dan Rather, Donald Bartholome worked in journalism and media in Houston in the late 50s and early 60s. Yeah, the same time Dan Rather was working in journalism and media in Texas. So, could the two men have crossed paths? Could there have been a lingering grudge that lasted across the decades? Doesn't look like we'll ever know. But it makes you wonder. There are some eerie coincidences here, all of which help to culminate in one of R.E.M.'s best-known songs. What's the frequency can at the show? More songs inspired by real events still to come, including one of Pearl Jam's biggest hits. This program is all about songs inspired by real events. And once you hear these stories, you will never listen to these songs the same way ever again. Here's our next one. Jeremy Wade Dell was a 16-year-old kid who lived in Richardson, Texas. Jeremy had all kinds of problems at home. He was the child of divorced parents. He was living with his father. And at school, he was seen as a loner who didn't have many friends. He always looked so sad. He was in counseling, but one day something just snapped. No one knows why, but some suspect that bullying was involved. At 9.45 in the morning of January 8th, 1991, he went to school as usual, where Faye Barrett, his English teacher, ripped into him for missing so many classes and for coming in late that day. She told him to go to the office and get an admittance slip. Jeremy left the room and soon returned. He turned to the teacher and said, Miss, I got what I really went for. And with that... He whipped out a loaded 357 Magnum, stuck it in his mouth, and pulled the trigger right in front of the 30 people in the class. It happened so fast that no one had any time to react. Jeremy left suicide notes with several classmates, but the contents of those notes were never revealed. Now, the story received international attention. It was seven years before Columbine, and the idea of a kid bringing a gun to school to kill himself was absolutely insane. One guy who was particularly fascinated was this surfer dude from San Diego named Eddie Vedder. The reason Eddie took notice of the song was because when he was in school in San Diego, one of his classmates, a kid named Brian, brought a gun to school. It was a sawed-off shotgun that he hid in the bushes until lunchtime. He then retrieved the gun, brought it into the building, and shot up a fish tank. Fortunately, he was disarmed before he did any damage. This freaked out Eddie for another reason. About two years earlier, he had a confrontation with this guy, and Eddie couldn't help wonder if he had been in the wrong place at the wrong time, more than just a fish tank would have had holes in it. After Pearl Jam had a big hit with the song Jeremy, some reporters tracked down Jeremy Dell's father. I found this letter written by him, Joseph Dell, and I quote, I had been approached by reporters who knocked on my door uninvited. My phone rang at odd hours with some stranger wanting to know why he did it. Notes were left on my door in my mailbox, and then I found out that a group had written a song that was in heavy rotation on MTV. The song was Jeremy by Pearl Jam. It caused me to sell my house and move. I've gotten those same notes and phone calls even though I moved away from Richardson. Those notes now come from Germany and England as well as the U.S. 
They always want the same thing. They want a piece of information or something that belonged to Jeremy. When I visit his grave, I often find notes and artifacts left behind by fans. There are large numbers of websites dedicated to Jeremy that spread information and half-truths offered by people who claim to have known him well enough to have inside information. Those people somehow gain status in these forums frequented by young teenagers who have some perverse idea that what he did was really cool. Always, always, they are lured by the song and speak to their adoration forever of Eddie Vedder. My anguish is just as deep with each call, note, or email. Okay, you see what I mean about not hearing a song the same way ever again? song written about Jeremy Dell of Richardson, Texas. And now, another story of sadness and terror. Kurt Cobain wasn't much for reading the newspaper, but one day in June of 1987, he came across a story about a 14-year-old girl who had been kidnapped at gunpoint by a freak ironically named Gerald Friend. He was a serial rapist who had already served time for the rape of a 12-year-old. He'd been paroled in 1980. And this girl, which we will call Polly, was hitchhiking her way home from a concert at the Community World Theater in Tacoma, Washington. She was taken to the trailer where Gerald Friend lived. He proceeded to torture her with whips and razors and a blowtorch while she was tied to some kind of pulley apparatus. Fortunately, she was able to escape from his van when he stopped for gas one day. She created a big commotion, cops were called, and a day later, Friend was arrested. And he's now serving two consecutive 75-year sentences in eastern Washington state. Kurt was really moved by this story and wrote the first version of a song that he called Hitchhiker when Nirvana was getting ready to record the Bleach album in 1989. It was first recorded during the sessions for the Blue EP later in the year and then refined during the Nevermind sessions the following spring. What we ended up hearing on the album is simply a remix version of the demo. Okay, here's where it gets even weirder. During a show on the 1991 Nevermind tour and during a performance of Polly. Two jerks in the audience sexually assaulted a girl. These two thugs are described by Kurt in the liner notes of the Incesticide album as two wastes of sperm and eggs. And now you know what Kurt meant. Only wants a cracker. Maybe she would like some food. She asked me to untie her. She's a Polly, based on a true story of kidnapping, rape, and torture. And now a song about the wrongfully convicted. Although he's never mentioned by name, the tragically hip song Wheat Kings is about David Milgard, a Manitoba man who was convicted for the rape and murder of a 20-year-old Saskatoon nursing assistant named Gail Miller. At the time of the crime, Milgard was 16. She was found dead in a snowbank. Two friends ratted him out with false testimony, and on January 31, 1970, he was sentenced to life in prison. He stayed there for 21 years before he was released. Two years after that, he was exonerated and cleared of all crimes. There were inquiries into how such a miscarriage of justice could have happened and why Milgard wasn't able to fight his conviction. In the end, a guy named Larry Fisher, the landlord who was renting a place to one of the guys with the fake testimony, was arrested, convicted, and sent to prison for Gail Miller's murder. He died in jail in 2015. The guys in the Tragically Hip once had a chance to meet Milgard several times in Winnipeg, and just so we're clear, 
Wheat Kings is about Milgard, but 38 years old is not. Tragically hit from Fully Completely with Wheat Kings, inspired by the wrongful murder conviction of David Milgard. The story behind this song begins with R. Bud Dwyer, the state treasurer of Pennsylvania, who was in charge of sorting out a tax problem. In the early 1980s, the state realized that it had taken too much tax off the paychecks of government workers. This had to be fixed, so a bunch of accounting firms bid for a contract to sort things out. A company called CTA was selected, and they set about going through the state's books. But then a twist. It was determined that the company with the winning bid, this CTA company, paid a $300,000 bribe to Dwyer. Everything went to court and he was convicted. Sentencing was set for January 23, 1987. The morning before, Dwyer called a press conference in front of reporters and TV cameras. He made a statement reiterating his innocence, pulled out a 357 Magnum from a manila envelope, and shot himself in the mouth. He died instantly. The whole thing was caught on video by at least five people. It ended up being run on TV in various forms everywhere, leading to a debate about what kind of news coverage was and was not appropriate for broadcast. Then, in July 1995, we got this song from Filter. Now you know what Richard Patrick is talking about. It's not the suicide of Kurt Cobain, which is what some people said. It's about the death of R. Bud Dwyer. Here are a few more songs based on real events. Sarah McLaughlin's Angel is about the heroin overdose of Jonathan Melvoin, the touring keyboardist with the Smashing Pumpkins. Both Pompeii by Bastille and Cities and Dust from Susie and the Banshees are about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Right Here, Right Now from Jesus Jones recalls the fall of the Berlin Wall in the fall of 1989. Zombie from the Cranberries is about a 1993 IRA bombing that killed two people. And April 29, 1992, from Sublime, is all about the L.A. riots that erupted after the Rodney King trial. Lots of songs, lots of stories. I'd like to thank Jeff for suggesting this topic, Real Stories Behind Songs. And if you have an idea for a song topic, let me know through alan at alancross.ca. After, what is this, 826 shows? <laughs> I pretty much need all the help I can get. Podcasts. More are coming all the time. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of them at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. They're all free, of course. Rate, review, and remember to subscribe. We're posting new podcasts every single week. If you need more information, there's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free newsletter that offers all sorts of music news. It's free, and you never get any spam. Beyond that, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+, and there is no reason why we can't connect. I'd be happy to do so. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.